Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Turning to the letter to the Hebrews, and it's nearly, nearly the end of this great letter that we've been working our way through, Hebrews chapter 13 this evening. And we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 13, but to help us, we're actually going to read the last little bit of chapter 12 again. So chapter 13 in your Bibles is page 1009, 1009, but I'm going to read from chapter 12, verse 18. Chapter 12, verse 18. Remember the writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. There's the contrast, not the earthly Jerusalem, a mountain that can be touched, but the heavenly Jerusalem. And you have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, they didn't escape when Moses spoke to them from the mountain, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time, His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me? Amen. Well, as you know, we've been working through Hebrews, 
And as we reach the end of the letter, I think you will agree with me, the big main point of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is more. He's better. He's greater. He's more. So, why does Christian worship often look like less? Have you ever thought about that? All the way through this letter, Jesus is, well, list, list them. Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the high priest. Jesus' covenant is better. His obedient life is greater. His sacrifice is better. His holy place is better. His true temple in heaven is greater. So, why does Christian worship look like less? I mean, look at us this evening. Is this it? Is this all there is? A lectern, piano, some instruments. At least in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle, there was a temple, there was a priest, there was an animal, there was a knife. At least in the Old Testament, there was Mount Sinai, there was thunder and lightning. You see it in chapter 12, verse 18. In the Old Testament, it could be touched. Those days are gone, the writer says. You haven't come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. See the logic? You used to be able to touch it, but now you have come to what cannot be touched. Verse 21, verse 22 rather, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the, the invisible Jerusalem. Ah, that's right, isn't it? Because we cannot touch it and smell it and see it, our worship feels less, doesn't it, often? And here's the thing, friends. We forget that a heavenly kingdom, heavenly Jerusalem, is just as real as physical Jerusalem. We can't see it, so we don't really believe that's right. We forget that all these earthly realities in verse 18, 19, all these earthly realities were pointers to things that are more real than these things, not less real. You, you get it, don't you, in, in C.S. Lewis's writings in different ways. He has these, these moments where he says, in the new creation, the grass will feel more grassy stronger, it will feel heavier, rocks will be harder to pick up, because in the new creation, it's not that things move into becoming more spiritual, they become more physical, more real. What's waiting for us in the future is more real than anything anybody has had so far. You, you see verse 26, when, when God spoke at Sinai, this is chapter 12, verse 26, when God spoke at Mount Sinai, yes, the earth shook, but Mount Sinai was just a sign that one day God will shake the whole earth, the heavens and the earth. The only thing that will not be shaken is the kingdom that will last forever, Jesus' kingdom. See, Christian worship often feels less, not more, because we forget that the fire of Mount Sinai is still there, but it is in the future. It's not that the fire has gone out, it is in the future ahead of us. It's not that it's less real. 
See, look at verse 18 again. This is what we need to feel the shape of this passage this evening. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest. You're a Christian now. You have not come to that. And you go to Trinity Church on New Covenant Street. And you say to yourself, is, is this it? No fire, no tempest? Is that all behind us? Where's the fire or the smoke? Ah, says the writer to the Hebrews, it's still there, but it is now coming. It's in the future. Look at verse 28 of chapter 12. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Oh, the fire has not gone out. The fire has not gone anywhere. The fire is still there, but it is now ahead of us in the future. God remains a consuming fire. He hasn't changed. He still wants us to worship Him with reverence and awe. And just because we cannot see the Lord Jesus doesn't mean He's less real. Just like you can't see oxygen doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because you cannot see the innumerable angels in heaven doesn't mean they're not real. And just because we cannot see the Lord Jesus does not mean you cannot see real worship. You can. You can really, really see it. You know that in the Bible, often things that we think are invisible aren't. Do you remember, you remember the Lord Jesus in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, when the, the friends carry the man to the Lord Jesus? They dig through the roof. What do we often think faith is? We think faith, faith is this kind of invisible substance like a gas, don't we, floating around. Some people have it, some don't. But what does Mark say when Jesus, when, the, when those, those men get to Jesus, what, is, what does he say? When Jesus saw their faith. When he saw their faith. They, they, they dug a hole in a roof. That's faith. Here in Hebrews chapter 13 this evening, the writer says you can see real worship. You actually can really touch it. It does take a physical form. True worship of the living God is not an emotion that you feel. It, it's not a song that you sing. It's something you actually do which is very, very visible and very, very real. You, you know, you sometimes hear people say things that are, are, when people really understand this, sometimes you hear them say things that are really quite strange and it, it shows that they understand this. I remember years ago hearing about a pastor on a Sunday morning. His wife died on a Sunday morning. It's at her bedside in hospital. And as she died, moments after he died, he said to, to his nearest and dearest, I want to go to church now this morning. And he said, the reason I want to go to church is because I want to be with my wife. Now, now stop and think about that. Why, why, how is that in any way possible? No, he said, I want to be with my wife. Look at verse 22 of chapter 12. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Where was his wife? in heaven, in Christ's presence. And as he comes to worship in church, what happens to God's people 
in our worship, we too come to the same place. On a, on a Sunday, when we lift up our hearts to God in His presence, we are lifting them up to where all His people throughout all of time dwell with Him perfectly forever. We are one with them. And that pastor understood it. He knew where his wife was, and he knew that in worship, he too was coming to where she was. So, look how real worship is here. It's all I want us to see this evening. Verse 28, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Listen, he's saying, Christian people who know that God is holy and who know that judgment is real and who know that the fire of His holiness one day will purge the earth, oh, people like that worship God. And here's what it looks like. Chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. They love each other. That's what acceptable worship looks like. Love for God, first of all, and love for others, second. No love, no worship. No family love, no Christian worship. You, you get variations of this, don't you, all through time in different ways. When, when Angela and I were students, maybe this is just common practice everywhere, when we were students in the Christian Union, the standard language was we're going to begin with a time of worship. And the worship is contracted to just the singing bit, as if the rest of the meeting wasn't worship and as, as if the rest of life wasn't worship. Another way you get this is I, I meet people from time to time, people, people who don't go to church anymore, who haven't joined a church, who've stopped attending a church, but they say, I'm still doing fine in my faith. Me and God are just fine as if that's what the Christian life is, me and God, as if that's what worship is, me telling Jesus I love Him, me and Him. It's interesting, isn't it? Hebrews says, if you want to worship God acceptably, that belief you have in an invisible God needs to take concrete form, and the way it takes concrete form is by loving the people of God, loving the family of God, so, I just have one point this evening, and it's this, true worship. You want to know what true worship looks like? True worship looks like drawing near to others. Drawing near to God involves drawing near to others. If you feel you have drawn near to God and it hasn't sent you outwards to others, Hebrew says it is not the living God you have drawn near to. No, if you want to come close to God, that is the main command in verse 1, isn't it? You cannot come close to Him without coming close to others. And I think chapter 13 just works this out in two ways. You need, you need, if you want to draw near to God, you need to draw near to the family, verses 1 to 6. And then verses 7 to the end, you need to draw near to your leaders. Draw near to the family, verses 1 to 6. Verses 7 to the end that Will will do in a couple of weeks, you need to draw near to your leaders. Love each other as brothers. It's how we prayed together for Heejung and Ben just moments ago. It's why we're moved the way that we are, aren't we? We are a family. 
It's, it's not just let love continue out there in the abstract. Let brotherly love continue. And some of you have brothers this evening, and you're immediately thinking, that's not a good thing. You don't want my love of my brother in your family. But of course, we know how it's meant to be, don't we? I love my human brothers deeply, and they know it. They can tell that at least most of the time they can. And God tells me to love you like that. You should know it and feel it for me, and I should know it and feel it from you. So let me just give us a few ways this works out, the writer says. If you want to know what brotherly love looks like, well, verse 2 If you want to tell me about your worship of God and how amazing the singing is, how fantastic the band is in the the church that you go to, how beautiful the organ music is in your choice of church, if you want to tell me how amazing the worship of God is, the writer says, tell me who's around your table for lunch. Tell me who you have for lunch. Is it the good and the great and the bold and the beautiful, or are you willing to show love to people you don't even know, to strangers? That's the point, isn't it? Do not neglect to show hospitality to your family, to the people you love, to the people who can give back to you. No, to to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I I think this reference to angels unawares here in verse 2, it's very likely a reference to Abraham in Genesis who hosted those three three visitors who turned out to be angelic messengers, and the Lord Himself was among those three. The point is, Abraham didn't know who they were. He wasn't trying to use them to get anything back from them. He didn't know they could benefit Him. He simply loved them. He worshiped God truly, so He served others generously. What about verse 3? Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, and remember those who are mistreated since you also, you also are in the body. See, imagine if it was you there. Imagine if this was your body hurting. What would you want done for you? Oh, yes, we get the Barnabas prayer news. We, we pray for people like that now and again. No, says the writer, what are you actually doing about it? It's why we have regular opportunities for giving to organizations like Barnabas Fund. We have a benevolent fund because we also have bodies, like other people have needy bodies. It's it's why we're doing next Sunday our Easter Thanksgiving offering for Syria and Turkey. See, I I think verse 2 and 3 here, this is the, the writer to the Hebrews way of telling us, reminding us what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 25. You might just want to turn there Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. Keep a finger in Hebrews. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, verse 33. Interesting, isn't it? Just like Hebrews 12 and 13 is talking about the end, the kingdom. The Son of Man, verse 33, will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, come you who are blessed by My Father, notice, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, 
and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. But then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, here it is in its essence, the care you take for Jesus' people, how you treat Jesus' people reveals the care that you take towards Jesus Himself. How you treat the King's family, His little ones, is how you treat the King. It's what worship is. You want to come close to God, you, you, you treat His family well. I think verses 2 and 3 in Hebrews 13 are saying true worship is all about how you love the kind of people when the world's eye is not watching, when there are no plaudits, when there are no prizes to be won, are you content to love when there are no awards for loving? That, that's the idea, isn't it? I saw, I saw a woman on Instagram this week uh, really wonderfully asking us, when, when, you post, when you post on Instagram that glowing tribute to your husband, who is it for? She says, very likely, it's not for him, actually, is it? He probably doesn't want to see that on Instagram. It's for others. And she asked the question, are you willing to love your three-year-old when nobody else will see it? Are you willing to love in a way that doesn't come with an attachment, with with an Instagram, Instagram reel attached to it? Have you ever seen the program Secret Millionaire? It's where, it's where millionaires go incognito into the community to watch people and to get alongside them and to learn about their needs. And as they watch these people, and people don't know that this person has money, the millionaire is watching to decide who will get their money. And the groups they're undercover among are simply told a documentary is being filled. They have no idea who they're rubbing shoulders with. I think one of the greatest problems for rich people is what they say, isn't it? The rich man has no friends. The greatest problem they have is people sucking up to them for their money, pretense and sham and show and false claims and empty promises. They get sob stories by the dozen. But what the millionaire discovers is what people would really be like with their money if they do not know who they are. There's another program, isn't there? Undercover Boss, I think it's called. The the top man in the company dons the overalls and puts on a disguise, and the top man is down with the lowest people in the company, unloading the lorry in the warehouse, asking them, what do you think of the boss at the top? And he watches his factory workers, his drivers. He he sees how his goods are being handled. He watches with his own eyes what his employees do with the business he lovingly built from the ground up with his own hands. He hears how they speak about him and what they really think. He's undercover. He's incognito. It's like a hidden camera in the heart, isn't it, showing what is really real, and no one is pretending to the authority figure because they do not know he's even there and watching. See, authentic Christian worship, authentic Christian worship, the writer says, knows that God is watching, that that God is watching. God sees His people in all the earth, and He knows how His people treat His people. Are we loving them or turning a blind eye to them? Look at verse 4. 
Remember, authentic worship, drawing near to God, means drawing near to others. Verse 4, real worship looks like drawing near to the right person in bed and not drawing near to the wrong person in bed. See, there are things we do with our bodies, aren't there, that love somebody else. And there are things we can do with our bodies that can harm somebody else. Unmarried sex is always selfish sex, for it's always taking, from, taking something from someone without having promised to give them something. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 5, what, what is the essence of adultery and sexual immorality? See it in verse 4, don't draw near to the wrong person in bed, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What's the essence of adultery and immorality? It is promise-less sex, sex without a promise. But look at verse 5, look where the promise comes from. Here's why this is wrong, because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you are not willing to say those words to someone, do not get into bed with someone. Striking, isn't it, that verse 5 follows right on the heels of verse 4. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. What's the connection between sex and money, verses 4 and 5? We're for marriage, people say. We're, We're against adultery. We're for marriage against adultery, but greed, we kind of turn a blind eye to it. We tolerate greed. No, says the writer, both of those things are about love of others. Bed hopping is lust, not love. It, It does not put the needs and hopes and feelings and dreams of others first. And greed is discontentment, not love. Greed does not put the needs of others first. See verse 16 of chapter 13? Put your eyes on verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Friends, this evening, the real, right, true worship of God will mean you love other people more, and loving other people more will lead to less sexual sin. And loving other people more will lead to loving money less. Love God and love others, it will lead to less sexual sin and it will lead to loving money less because we become people who want to give to others. Have you ever thought that acceptable Christian worship looks like contentment? Verse 5, be content with what you have. Wouldn't Wouldn't it be amazing to be content? Wouldn't it be amazing to have it? Imagine getting out of bed in the morning and saying, I've got enough. I've got enough. I'm full. I'm fine. No more required. I think I've told you before about Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan. He has a lovely book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he says, you know, there are two ways to have enough. There are two ways you can get enough in life. You can bring your possessions up to the level of your desires. In other words, I want all of this, and only if I get all of these things, then I'll be content. You can bring your possessions up to the level of your desires, or, he says, you can bring your desires down to the level of your possessions. This is what I have. This is what God has given. 
therefore I, I have enough. We're odd, aren't we, as human beings? We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to please people we don't like. I don't know who said that, but it's very true, isn't it? And God says to us in His words, stop it. Stop doing that. Be content with what you have. Remember Paul in Philippians, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So interesting. Contentment is so hard. I think anybody prepared to be remotely honest will say that we find contentment hard. We're not born content, are we? We're born the opposite of content. We're, we're naturally discontent, and you have to learn contentment. See how the verb works in verse 5? Keep your life free from love of money. Keep it free. It's like weeding a garden. You don't do it once, and then it's done. No, you need to keep doing it. Keep coming back to it. You have to keep weeding. Some of us are starters, not finishers, aren't we? We have great ideas, big projects, and then six months later, the garden is a mess. If you're not active in keeping the love of money at bay, the love of money will keep you. How, how do we learn contentment? I think the writer is saying we learn that loving money more than God is a form of hating God. Loving money more than God is a form of hating God. Loving money more than others is a form of hating others. Loving money more than being content with what I have is a, a profound form of ingratitude. Be content with what you have. Those are rich words, aren't they? What you have, you want more than that? Look at what God has already given. Look at what's in the bank. Look at what's in your home. Look at what's on the walls and learn to spot when a love of wanting more is taking over your life. But, but look at the reason, friends, in verse 5. Look at the reason for contentment. Here's how to be content. For He has said, he, here's, here's how, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What we most want in life is relationship, isn't it? End of story. It's all about relationship. And contentment is impossible when we put possessions before relationship, before relationship with God and relationship with others. We often use money, don't we, to cover over a lack of relationship. Some of my recent travels in America fundraising, I have met some of the most astonishingly wealthy people I've ever come across in my life, and I have also met some of the most unhappy. People who have everything fiscally and very, very little relationally. You know, when, when you have somebody's attention, somebody's devotion, somebody's love, that's when contentment grows. That's what the writer is saying, verse 5. You and I have the strongest, most precious, most long-lasting, most unbreakable relationship of all. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Live long enough and you will be forsaken by those closest to you. One day death will claim them and take them, or you will do that to others, and you will be the one forsaking them in your death. But you and I have someone with us now in life, someone who will be with us there in death, who will hold us through death, who will meet us and be with us on the other side of death. 
We sometimes sing it, don't we? That soul who on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will never, no, never forsake to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. You know, in, in those trips uh, to the United States, m- most of it was meeting Christian people, holding out my threadbare tweed Scottish cap to them. Uh, but part of one of the events I went to was in an office complex that was owned by a billionaire, one of Texas's richest men. And this man has everything, everything you could ever want. When he dies, the obituaries will be written, and everybody will want to know how much did he leave? How much did he leave? And there is only one answer, isn't there? He left everything. He left everything. One day his money will leave him. One day his money will forsake him. And like you and I, the richest person in the world and the poorest person in the world, we will all face the God of chapter 12, verse 29. Rich, poor, Christian, non-Christian, we will all face him. The only thing that counts, the only thing that matters will be having Christ at your side, Christ in your heart, you in him, him in you. Augustine said, he who has him to whom all things belong has all things. He who has him to whom all things belong has all things. Friends, everything is yours because you have Christ. I love these words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. Oh, says the writer to the Hebrews, put everything the right way round in God's kingdom. Love one another. Lay down your life for one another. Honor marriage. Keep your hands free from the love of money for God is yours, and you are His. So we can confidently say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen.